welcome to another episode of the Intoxicated Podcast. Hi, Sherry. Hello. I'm Matt Salis, and I'm joined again for the second in a three-part series uh, about our relationship, about our marriage. I'm joined by my wife, Sherry Salis. And the first time around, if you haven't listen to that episode, I recommend it. The The topics do go in chronological order. The first time Sherry and I talked, it was episode nine, and the topic was our relationship, our marriage, during my drinking, but primarily during the, the 10 years of my drinking, when I knew I was in trouble, I had periods on and off where I knew I was an alcoholic, where Sherry started to really worry about my drinking, where Sherry started to believe I was an alcoholic, and how we managed that, the damage it did to our relationship, the damage it did eroding trust, and how we separately navigated that period and got to the point where it was time for me to quit. So today we're going to talk about the quitting. We're going to talk about early sobriety, early recovery. But before we dive right into that and how challenging that has been for our relationship, for our marriage, Sherry, I'm wondering, before I found permanent sobriety, I tried and tried and tried. I, I, I know for sure that I quit twice for six months and I quit one time for nine months and in all three of those attempts and then many other shorter attempts, I went back to drinking. Do you have, there's a couple I want to talk about that are particularly on my mind, but are, do you have any times that I quit drinking, but I failed and I relapsed and went back to drinking that you're thinking about? Um, just one time in particular that really kind of stands out was my mom was in town to watch the kids so we could go away for a weekend with some of our other fellow business owners of the franchise that we owned. And we were supposed to have a uh, kind of a working meeting, but also some fun time. And we have done the, had done this before in the past and rented a cabin in, <clears throat> in the foothills. And we were doing our grocery shopping for our meal. And we... Uh, we're at a grocery store, and right across the street from the grocery store was a Sam's Club, and you remembered that they had a liquor store in there. And this was at a time when Denver didn't sell anything but 3-2 beer um, in their grocery stores. And you had we had done our shopping, and you looked across at the Sam's Club, and you said something about, like, I know Sam's Club has a liquor in, store in there. I'd just like to go in and buy something and... I didn't know you were just kind of expressing yourself of your concern. I thought you were telling me because this had happened before where you kind of surprised me and just went and bought alcohol and started drinking again. So I started freaking out and get really upset and we kind of mustered our way through to get back to the house and um, you, uh, you know, you were clearly upset and I was clearly upset, but we tried to fake it in front of my mom, who was watching the kids and the kids, and we said goodbye, and we kind of bickered on the way out, and to the 
cabin, and then eventually you pulled into a liquor store and bought alcohol, and then drank pretty heavily all week. And we had friends that were there that were was really aware of your issues with alcohol, and they had an adult daughter who was going through the same thing, so I felt like their presence was a good support for me. And But they were being really, you know, gracious to you and kind of acting like there was nothing wrong because, of course, I didn't tell anybody else. And I don't think anybody else knew that you had real problems. And, of course, I was the only one that knew that you said you were going to try to quit. So. And then we got back home and I thought maybe because you had mentioned something on the way back home in the drive that you were going to quit or try again, or something of that nature, and then you were drinking, actually you weren't drinking beer, you were drinking vodka on the rocks that evening, and caused quite an issue between us, and between my mom and you, and me, because I told her what had happened. I remember at the beginning of what you just talked about when we were sitting in the Sam's Club parking lot, I remember that. And what's so, like, mystifying about how my mind worked back then when I told you that I was really jonesing for a drink and wonder and thinking about the Sam's Club liquor store, I really, 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 really did not intend to drink at that point. I mean, I was in a really bad place, a really vulnerable place, and um, like the chan- the danger was really high. Like when when you go camping and they say you can't have a campfire because you might burn down the whole forest. Like that's where I was, but I still had no intention of drinking at that point. And um, as you know, back then it didn't take much to kind of set me off and put me over the edge and strike that match and so a little bit of a bickery argument as you said as we were leaving town and uh I was off to the races so yeah the my determination in early sobriety was um even even when I really felt strongly like this time this is going to be different it's just so fragile and uh, and I didn't make it that time. And I think, you know, part of what we're going to talk about today is that it takes a lot more than determination and willpower to make it. And on the, the all of the failed attempts that I had at sobriety, that's all I had was I really want to make it. I really don't want to drink anymore. I'm determined. But I didn't do any of the work, the reading, the research. I didn't change anything nutritionally. I didn't. I just didn't understand what it takes to heal from the disease. And you, more than anybody else, were on the brunt. You were on the receiving end of it. I think both of us, we'll talk about the kids in a little bit here, but I think both of us worked really hard to keep the kids out of this. And I think we were mildly successful. There were certainly some times where we were not. But 
this story you just told is an example of a time where we waited, at least initially, I waited until I was away from the kids before I gave in and relapsed and all of the weight of that kind of horror show was thrust upon you and you alone. And so I don't blame you for getting your mom involved when we got back. You were hurting. You were really angry. And that's a logical thing for you to have done. One of the other times, one of the times that I'm thinking about just to kind of to talk about how how it doesn't take much to go from a determination not to drink to boom, right back, right back at it. We were sledding. Do you remember the time we sledded with our friends? With they have kids our age too, and we just went to. I think we just went to. We didn't go to Ruby Hill. We went to that little that little park in Lodo in Denver. Confluence Park or whatever it is, just a, just a little bump of a hill. But we were with really good friends, and the plan was to go back to our house after sledding for dinner. But I had not had anything to drink for some period of time. I don't remember at that point, probably a month. And I was committed to not drinking. This this these friends, this couple, they aren't particularly heavy drinkers they seem to be able to take it or leave it but one thing I remember about them is she would when we would get together she would make a joke and say let's drink early and often meaning let's get after it and then kind of we both had kids let's sober up toward the end and then we can manage our kids when we go back to our separate houses but for some reason, even though they aren't particularly heavy drinkers, that saying of let's drink early and often would just really stick in my head. And when we got off the sledding hill, I was like, I was a wreck because I knew we were going back to our house and that's when the cocktails would come out. And I knew I would offer them something to drink, but I was, and you were probably going to have a drink and I was going to not drink and just the... As simple as that sounds to do, to just not drink when other people are drinking, it was beyond massive in my mind as far as how hard that would be, how shameful that would be, how embarrassed. Because this is a couple that I look up to. They're both very successful professionals. Their, their kids are great. They're roughly our age. I think they're a couple years younger than us. But... I admire them, I respect them, and the idea that I was going to expose this weakness, this this inability to manage my drinking was just more than I could handle. And so we got in our cars to drive home, their family in their car and our family in our car, and I told you that I was going to drink when we got home. Do you remember that one? I don't. I don't remember that. I mean, I believe you that it happened. Yeah. I guess... Maybe that just is filed away as to another time that I was shocked and disappointed and felt sprung upon because you knew you would say these things and I couldn't react. So, our friends. so talk about that a little bit because 
I that's not how it worked in my mind, but I think in your mind it did. I think you you thought that I would you thought that I would like plan this out and and tell you that I was going to drink in a situation where it would be hard for you to have a big negative reaction. But in truth, that isn't how my mind worked at all. The closer we would get to the the breaking point, the situation where I was going to have to reveal that I was in my own mind less of a man than the other people that were there or had this predilection, I would I'd give in and and I would just succumb to pressure but to you you thought that I would intentionally do it in a way that you couldn't kind of wig out and have a big reaction yeah and you know and I knew that I knew that it would be easier for you to you know do this when there were people around and so that's where I thought was like oh and also part of it was everybody else that I was thinking or thinking, everybody else is having fun and why can't I? So I'm just going to do it. And then my wife can't say anything because there's people here and then I'll just deal with the consequences later. So it seemed to me like selfish on two sides. Like you weren't going to try to muster through like something that needed to be done because you didn't want your fun taken away and you were going to do it in a time that I wouldn't be able to react or it wouldn't be appropriate for me to react. And so you're like, I'm saving myself the trouble right now. So that's really interesting because, I mean, what what the main point of talking today is about is your reaction to things as the spouse of an alcoholic is different than my reaction to things. And mostly we're going to talk about that in recovery, the way you recover, because make no mistakes, mistake about it. You had to recover from my alcoholism, just like I'm recovering from my alcoholism. And the pace of that recovery is different for you than it is for me. But it's different all the way along, even like you're talking about the times that I tried to quit and I relapsed, you you know, I totally understand what you're saying, but that never entered my mind. It never entered my mind that, oh, you can't, you can't make a big display of your reaction because our friends are here. All that was in my mind was, it's going to be so embarrassing for me if I, and so shame-filled for me if I don't drink like everybody else does tonight. And so, you know, that's kind of fascinating. I The only time I ever told you something in public because I was afraid of your reaction was the time I lost $1,200 in Las Vegas. But that was way before we had kids. We that weren't even married. That was a fairly empty terminal at well, the still, Midway Airport no, at 1139. It was O'Hare. I remember specifically because I was glad you were flying into O'Hare in Chicago and not the smaller Midway because I thought there'd be more people there. I was so terrified. But, but that was, I mean, that was definitely drinking related, but I was with eight, eight or nine other guys that were all drinking just as heavily as I was. And for whatever reason, I had no idea that that was a sign that drinking was causing me problems when I lost $1,200. But, 
But and to you and I at that stage, early right out of college, basically, that was a ton of money, and I was so afraid you were going to leave me. But that was the only time I ever told you something in public for fear of your reaction. But that that's very interesting that that's how you perceive all the times that that I did it. Uh, right as the event was starting or the drinking opportunity was starting, you thought it was so you'd have to be calm, and I did it that way because that was my breaking point. The only other time I want to talk about that was a failed attempt at, at sobriety was the time I went nine months. And the reason I started drinking at the end of that time was I still felt awful. I was still full of shame. I mentally had not yet bounced back emotionally. I was just sad a lot. And I equated nine months with forever. I thought, gosh, if I haven't healed in nine months, if I'm not good to go after that period of time, then I'm never going to be feeling better than this. That's really, really, really how I thought. And... I just didn't appreciate at that time how much damage I had done to the, the neurotransmitters, the function of my brain, the patterns that I had set over 25 years of heavy drinking. I just didn't appreciate how long the healing process takes. So I decided to start drinking. Do you remember that one? Just um, blended this, in with all the others? Yeah, I mean, I kind of stopped keeping... Trackness-like. I mean, I remember, was that a time then we, you weren't drinking at the lake, but then you were drinking at Christmas when your parents were here? Probably, because I... And that was... I remember I was mowing the lawn when I started drinking again. Well... I remember... So, the reason I brought that one up, I remember... I just bought a six-pack, I think, and brought it home. And I was going to drink my six-pack throughout the day, and definitely try to keep it you know peaceful and and be you know moderate about my drinking and not not go overboard but I remember I had to go to Ace Hardware a couple times and this is something I never told you until just now I had to go to Ace Hardware a couple times while I was working on the house or the yard that day I don't know what the project was but both times when I went to Ace Hardware I stopped at Ogden Street South on the way back and had a beer and sat there at the bar been sober for nine months this is my first day it might have been the second day it might have been a saturday sunday combo here that i'm remembering but i sat at the bar and there was just this hopeless 70 year old drunk sitting next to me and he kept trying to talk to me and i just thought he was disgusting but there's nothing wrong with me that I've got a six-pack at home, but I'm that's not going to be enough, so I'm going to sneak off for a couple extras that my wife won't be able to see while I'm making my hardware store run. And I remember even, even then, even after nine months of sobriety, it didn't strike me that, that, was, that there was anything wrong with that or it was unusual or it was sneaky. I didn't think of it as lying. I just thought of it as protecting myself and protecting you, frankly, from from seeing what was going on. So, since you never knew about that, sorry. Does that upset you? 
Well, yeah, I mean, it's really far in the past and I don't even remember it, but it certainly leads me to believe that the feelings I have of deception from you and distrust are completely validated. Why I don't trust or believe the things that you say. I mean, you were being sneaky. You were being devious. You were thinking it was protection. But really, it was just you being more selfish. Like, I told her that I'm going to have the six-pack, and that's what you agreed to, perhaps. And I don't know how it all played out, but then you're like, but that's still not going to be enough for me, so I'm going to sneak off and do my own thing and satisfy what I really need to feel good about my alcohol consumption. And I'm going to protect her, but I don't... I don't see how that's any sort of protection at all. Because, I mean, it just seems like that's just not right. Devious move. And I don't, I don't see protection in that in any way. Other than just, that's what your mind thought. Because you were sick. Well, it is. It was devious. It was an outright lie. But at the time, that's just not how the alcoholic mind worked. That's not how my mind worked. I I mean, when you say you don't see how that's protection, I, you, you use the word need. You're right. I felt like I needed those couple extra beers. And if I did them in privacy, then... And you didn't have to know about them. Then I felt like I was protecting you from from seeing something you didn't already want to. See. I mean, you already didn't want to see me bring the six pack home to begin with, but you definitely didn't want to see me drink more than that. So I'm not justifying my behavior. It's awful. It's deceitful. It's denial. It's all those things. But I'm just trying. I guess. I'm not trying to excuse it. I'm just trying to explain it, though. It's the the need is there and you love the people around you and you don't want to hurt them any more than you already know that you are. And I looked at that as a way to to get what I felt like I needed and not hurt you further. And now... You know, when you hear of that and you think of the other things that I did, you they rightly so seem like just mean-spirited lies, don't they? Not mean-spirited, just selfish, self-serving lies. I mean, and then it just would make me think, God, you can't even, like, you have so much alcohol in your system that, like, six beers gets you that drunk. So, you know, or... Or it affects you so much differently than it affects others. Look how drunk you are after six beers. Not like I think, oh, you're not a man. You can't handle six beers. But at least it would, like, clarify and make sense. Like, why is he so acting so drunk? And it kind of reminded me of the time when I used to, like, count your bottles. Or, like, look at the vodka bottle and see how much you drank. And, you know, because there was always the... I only had this much, or I only had that much, or, you know, and then you would, like, come up and sip off of the vodka bottle, and, like, how can he be this intoxicated and this out of control 
and this bad off with just this little amount that he says he's drunk. So I don't think it was mean-spirited. I just think it was selfish. Because you needed more than what you wanted to admit that you needed. Almost if I knew you were drinking more, at least I felt like, oh, that's why he's, you know, really, really bad. You know what's, I don't think funny is the word, but I think it's interesting about what you just said is that whatever the amount that I was public about that I was drinking at the time was what I had lowered my standards, my personal standards to find acceptable. So if that was a six pack of beer throughout the day on a Saturday and then a couple of cocktails at night, if that's what I was open about, then that's what I had decided was okay. Now, looking back, you know, I never drank a single shot cocktail in my life. So they were doubles or triples the cocktails were and then six pack on top of that. So you're talking, you know, 12 drinks. That's what I found acceptable, 12 drinks. And, but then on top of that, you're right. I would, I would sneak more beers or I would sneak a little more vodka or whatever. And so that's the part that was shameful for me. It wasn't, it wasn't shameful for me at the time that I was consuming 12 drinks in a day. It was only shameful that I, the extra three or four that I, I tried sometimes to hide from you or that you would caught, you would catch me. Like you said, taking a swig off the bottle or something like that. I very rarely knew that. It would just be when I would go to get the vodka. If I wanted a drink, then I'd be like, what? This was not that long ago we bought this. And you're not, you know, because for a long time you didn't drink hard alcohol. Like towards the end, you just only drank beer. And so sometimes I'd be like very confused and... Yeah. Well, so let's talk about once once the recovery began, the real recovery, the permanent sobriety that I'm about two and a half years into now. Once that started, my belief and reaction and hope was that as soon as we removed alcohol from our life, our marriage our relationship would get immediately better it would everything would be fine and that's not at all what happened well i feel like we learned that a few times when you were not drinking for longer periods like i remember just one time like you were just not drinking for six weeks and you're like well this is pointless like we're still just squabbling we're still not getting along still not getting better so alcohol must not be the problem but then I feel like there were times, like, when you were on the times that were, like, the two six months or the nine months, like, yeah, and I kept saying, like, we have this whole pile of crap to deal with. It's just not the drinking. Or it's just not this. It's just not that. It's, like, this whole big bundle of stuff. And you were, and I felt like you were pretty adamant that if you just quit drinking, then everything would start to repair quickly. And just from that not drinking you know there's a lot of movies that have been made about alcoholism my favorite as you know is when a man loves a woman with meg ryan and andy garcia and in that movie meg ryan is the alcoholic and they've got a nice family two kids and after her rock bottom kind of drinking disaster where she decides she needs to get help 
and she enters recovery, his role as the sober spouse gets diminished in a way because he had always been there. He had gotten used to having a wife that drank too much and he was always there to pick up the pieces and try to protect the kids and and get things back to normal after an episode. And that that movie in the end it doesn't have a happy ending. They they are not able to reconcile it because his role has changed so dramatically. Did you ever feel that way? I know you've said to me that you got used to living with an alcoholic and at least you knew you knew what was coming at you. But did you ever feel when I first got sober like you didn't know what to expect or that your role had changed? Does any of that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I know that you and I have talked about that a little bit. Um, like... In the early stages of this, you would often say, well, you're just so used to me being drunk all the time. You don't know what it's like, or I don't know exactly how you'd say it, but you'd say, well, you're just, you know, you're angry and you're just probably mad because your role is gone. I think that maybe that's a time where I feel like you've subliminally absorbed like the message of that movie. I never wanted to be the one to pick up all the pieces. I never wanted to be the one to ask to protect the kids from you. I never wanted to be the one that was, like, taking care of you. So I was very happy to have you sober. There's never been a time where I've been like, well, I knew my role. I guess the time that I said that is to you, like, well, you know, it's kind of that situation. It's the devil I know when you would talk about quitting drinking, especially early on. I'd be like, why? You're just going to go back in a month or two. So... Why upset the apple cart and make everybody miserable when you know you're just going to go back to it again? And I know that's not very supportive, but after several failed attempts, you kind of felt that way. But I don't feel like my role is diminished in any way. Because I think it's great when you are able to help out. I mean, now the kids are older and they don't need us that much, so it's kind of... But yeah, I would have would have loved having an extra hand the Saturday night before Easter to take care of Easter stuff or Christmas Eve, finishing up Christmas Eve stuff, depending on, uh, you know, the kind of wine that your dad had chosen for dinner. But I don't feel like, like I was the Andy Garcia character, like, oh, I don't have anything to do. I mean, I understand, like, in the movie, she has a lot of friends that he doesn't understand that she relates with. And he doesn't understand, and and she kind of, I feel like, pushed him out. Like, you don't understand the feelings, and they didn't work together, where I feel like that was separate or different than us. Like, you've talked to me, and I've listened, and I've tried to understand. I think the, the big point of what you just said, though, was because I had quit before and I had gone back to drinking, you had that kind of self-defense mechanism of why you're just going to start again. And I think that's really important because that dogged us for a long time in the recovery process. You mean like it stalled mine because I just didn't believe that you were going to stay sober? Well, here's the thing. If, If we're trying to get sobriety into the marriage and I'm the one that's the drinker, 
ultimately I'm the one that controls whether or not I drink or not. Nobody else can make me drink and no one else can keep me from drinking. And so you, who also needs to recover from this hellish nightmare, you are dependent on me holding up to my end of the bargain. You can't control whether or not not I drink. Only I can do that. So I guess the point is that your recovery by necessity lagged behind my recovery. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's absolutely fair to say because why would I start recovering from something that I don't know if it's going to happen? You know, six months, nine months, that's a long time. But since I had experienced those before, you know, it seemed like seem like why bother I mean just to get you know disappointed again when you started drinking so I think that's totally fair I think that's natural and smart so when when I was drinking I think we talked about this in the first episode that we did you had to build a wall to protect yourself from me. Not only did you stop trusting me, but you just weren't attracted to me. You didn't, you know, you you didn't know what was going to come out of my mouth. You didn't know what attitude I was going to have or what mood I was going to be in. And so you built a wall to protect yourself from me, right? Yeah. And then here we are in in recovery, supposed recovery and and I'm not drinking anymore and and we say okay well we've got a the the wall that was between us that was alcohol is out of the way let's start to fix the relationship but the wall is still there that you've built to protect yourself and I'm not saying that anything you did was wrong in fact I'm applauding you I mean you had to do that because like you said I had made it nine months before and started drinking again so why would you start dismantling that wall just because I told you I wasn't going to drink anymore. Right? Yeah. So I think what what actually started the recovery process for you and I, for our relationship, and then for you personally, was when we started addressing some of the specifics, the specific things that needed to be repaired and the specific problems that had happened. And I know, like, one of the things that we had to address was the memories that kind of haunt you. Talk a little bit about how you hold on to memories and how that's not something that you're able to, like, move past. Even, Even after we talk about specific instances... Those memories haunt you, don't they? So yeah, memories are hard for me to edit. To move past? And to move past. It's hard for you to talk about, isn't it? Yes. It is, because I don't have a cloud of alcohol making me forget. Some people just have really good memories, and I am one of them. Especially if it's related to people. So, it's just really hard to forget 
And then knowing that you're a, I'm affected by it. It was something that happened from someone that I'm supposed to love and trust and I'm supposed to be committed to for the rest of my life in marriage and we have children. So yeah, those memories and the memories that are made in your house should be good memories. So then the bad ones haunt me even more. Because it's just, I just feel like it's a failure. What's a failure? A relationship or that specific instance in the relationship? Sometimes I feel like the relationship has, has been a failure in ways and at different times. And especially when those incidents happen. Because it doesn't make it seem like a loving home. It happened in, you know, like our house. Or it happened when we were supposed to be having fun and relaxing and going on vacation or something. So it's like it's in holidays. It's like ruined it. So when we were trying to recover early on and we would say, okay, let's, let's, let's take a handful of, of bad instances, bad memories, and let's talk them out. And you, you got to hear me tell you how sorry I was. And you got to hear the regret in my voice and all of that. I mean... I'm just trying to make the point that that wasn't enough, that there's stuff that's just permanent. And, like, I I wouldn't expect talking it out or my apology, my apology to erase the memory, but it's more than the memory lingering. It's, it's kind of there, hovering all the time. Like, um, not that you can never be happy again and that you haven't, learn to trust me again because you have but it just doesn't it's not it's not as simple as taking some therapeutic approach and discussing it and moving on it's it's permanent trauma well and maybe that's just me i mean maybe like i've been able to forgive but you can't you know they say forgive and forget and i know now the new thing is you know you can forgive but you don't have to forget and and now that's okay and but I think it's just harder for me because of just my emotions and my memory and the way it all works. Oh. And the way maybe I felt deceived and hurt from those times that it just kind of all adds up. Maybe I'm just not a good enough person to move on and move past that in a way. Like I try, like I don't think about them every day. Sometimes there will be a trigger, and I'll think about it, but I don't, like, look at you and I'm not mad. I don't get disgusted or upset with you. I, 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 don't, just... I don't think it's just you. I don't think... I mean, yeah, you've got a good memory. You've got a better memory than me, but I don't think it's just you, and I don't think... It's because there's anything wrong with you that you have this trauma that you can't forget. And I think you made the point, you said holidays or vacations. I think that was probably the hardest time when we would argue because the anticipation was for something great. And then the night before, something would happen and I'd be drinking and 
we'd argue and it would take what was supposed to be something great, not something normal, just not just an regular every day, but the the evening before vacation or the evening before a holiday and make it terrible and that would uh that would leave a lasting those are the memories that you bring up most often when I ask you what what's what's on your mind. But I don't think I don't think this idea that you're to blame because your memory is different than others or that someone else would would move past it better. I don't think that's fair to you. I think I think it's trauma and you are doing your pet you're doing your best and I think time is time helps but it takes a long time. It's funny how I have such a good memory and I can remember Specifics about the times that you quit drinking. Oh, you're remembering plenty of other times. Um, so, I think the approach that we've taken to addressing the specific times that are haunting you, I think we're doing the best we can. I, I don't know anything else we can do, really, other than to talk about it and you know, come back to it as often as we need to. And, but the other thing that was kind of a hang up to our recovery and our relationship improving after I quit drinking was when we would talk. And I mean, I think we should mention that we made a point to have, we had an appointment for talking once a week, every week. And sometimes it would be an hour. Sometimes it would be two hours, but we, Every for back then it was every Sunday. It's we're on a now we're every Thursday, but back then it was every Sunday we would sit down and we would talk. And the, I think that's really important because you know we we were spending the time to try to repair and not just hoping that it would happen because the alcohol was gone. But even when we did that, you know the the pace of improving the relationship was slow going. And I remember it kind of kept coming back to the kids for a while. And I would say, well, but we kept the kids out of it. And you would say, but we mostly kept the kids out of it. And we actually got to a point where you and I sat down and we, I think I took notes and we described to each other what we came up with was five times that the kids were really impacted by my drinking and the subsequent arguing that resulted from my drinking. And you and I talking about it, that was step one, but step two was to sit down with the kids. And again, we had our, our list. These are the five times we want to talk to you about kids where dad's drinking was out of hand to the point where it impacted you. How old were the kids when we did that? That was, that like was a probably a year and a half ago. So. 15 and a half, 13 and a half. Ten and a half and seven and a half. Yes. Yeah. So, um, why don't you just talk a little bit, just so, just just to make it clear the kind of scenario we're talking about. Talk about the time with the picture frame, or is it too hard? I think that's too hard. I think it's all too hard. 
was just a time that it was like a Sunday night and you had no idea what time it was and for some reason it was a really bad Sunday drinking episode and um <clears throat> Sundays were often the worst because I would start to kind of panic about the coming work week and I'd be sad that the week was ending or the weekend was ending and I would double up my efforts to medicate so Sundays were often bad and my mood and that isn't festive drinking that that medicating Sunday night drinking before a Monday morning of work is it's dark it's a bad place so like a lot of the times on Sundays I would try to do something with the kids after church out of the house but on Sunday nights in particular you like to have the house you know the alarm set and everything shut up so then um, you can be comfortable knowing that you don't have to have any responsibilities is how you look at it I think you didn't have to you know make sure the house is safe and secure so I don't remember what happened but there was a picture frame that's hanging in the hallway that um, outside of the boys' room and you smashed it with your hand and then you were bleeding and they their bedroom door was open and I was trying to clean it up and they were upset and crying and our daughter was upstairs and so she was trying to calm them down and they had to of course then stay in the bedroom because there was glass on the floor because then I also needed to take care of your hand and it wasn't terribly cut up and bloody a little bit though but you know I'm sure the alcohol made it bleed more because your blood was thin and so that was one time that they were just kind of witness to it all. That. And while while you were cleaning up the glass and cleaning up my hand, I remember Catherine has talked about, so she's the oldest, she read stories to them, right? She got yep. out books. And we started like trying to sing some, just some songs I could think of that would be silly just to kind of also cover up your volume and what you were saying. I don't remember. But just the mutterings that you were... I don't know what you were talking about. I don't even... You know. But, yeah. So she kind of had to step up and be the protector. And so she read stories to them while you dealt with me and you dealt with the glass. And so that was one of the five really, really bad times that you and I argued loudly enough and I got out of hand enough that they were involved. And we talked to them about that that day that when we sat down and went through all five. And I, my memory from that talk, Sherry, is that their, their anger and their reaction... And their feedback when we had that talk was kind of equivalent to what their age was. Catherine definitely let out a good bit of anger that she had pent up inside about those instances. And Nick, Nick, who's the second oldest, he kind of leaned over and hugged her to try to comfort her while she was talking and expressing her anger and she was crying. And then Joey, the third oldest, he had, he has really good hearing. 
and he actually a couple of times was the one that we woke up in the middle of the night and so when he watched his older siblings react he felt empowered to to share and that was good and then down to Andrew the youngest he was pretty much too young for all of it but it was good for him to be a part of that family discussion is that fair yeah yep sorry I know this is hard <coughs> sorry about my nose my nose blowing I think it's understandable Um, but that, the reason that I feel like we needed to talk about that particular session on this, on this recording is because that was a huge milestone for us or a huge roadblock, I guess, for us to get out of the way for our recovery, the recovery of our relationship. Yeah, I... Sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, because I felt like in the past, whenever we would talk about memories and things that I would have, you would seem to think that I would just like overreact or overblow or that you thought I had always been good about protecting the kids, but there were definitely times they heard or they didn't know what was going on or they could hear us like still up late at night and they didn't understand and I knew that, I knew that they needed to have what you were trying to give to me. And maybe it would work on them more than me because I wasn't as, you know, they weren't as hurt. And, and we did really do a good job in a lot of ways of keeping them out. But the times that they did know about, they needed to hear from you and hear from us. Because I always worried that Nick would hear what's going on like Joey did, but never react. And Catherine and Andrew have hearing loss, so they were able to not hear it as much and also based on where the bedrooms are but or you know I just felt like I kind of was getting frustrated with you making it seem like we always had them safely guarded and they were protected from all this because that wasn't the truth so once we we had that discussion and we've been just really, really open with the kids about my alcoholism and how, you know, we've talked about brain chemistry with them. We've talked about the dangers that they face. Especially with my father being an alcoholic. And alcohol being an important part of the lives of the men on my side of the family. Not necessarily alcoholics, but um, ever-present. And so we've talked to them and been real open with them about about how it works and how dangerous alcohol is and I think once we had that discussion and let them share how they were feeling and hear how sorry that I was and how bad I felt about it that made a huge impact on the ability for you and I to move forward is that fair? yeah I think so yeah so the repair of our marriage, the recovery process, it all, I think if, we, if you had to pick one word, it all comes down to trust because you were deceived for so many years. 
You were deceived about how much I was drinking when I was drinking. You were deceived about my intentions to quit when I, well, my intentions were to quit, but my ability to follow through on my intentions to quit when I would try to stop drinking and fail. So all of that deceit and specifically the last 10 years of my drinking when I think you and I both would agree I was a full-fledged alcoholic, those, all of that deceit just eroded all the trust. And building trust back is really, really hard. I mean, we're two and a half years into sobriety now and things are better. Things are much better. But, and I, I feel like we're over the hump. There's, there's a, there are a lot of relationships that survive alcoholism, but they don't survive recovery. A lot of them, a lot. Like I didn't realize until this kind of became my life's work, how common that is for a relationship to survive addiction and not, re, not survive recovery. But I feel like we're over the hump as far as worrying about whether or not a relationship is going to survive. But we've got a long way to go to continue to build trust. It's weird because I feel like when you use the word trust, though, like people think there's just all trust or no trust. And I feel like... Like it's a yes or no? Yeah. Like, but I feel like I had lots of trust, even when you were drinking really heavily or you would be, you know, in a really bad place for a long period of time. I didn't have... <sighs> I didn't have distrust that you would ever run us into debt and that you would just walk out on us or that you would go and have an affair because you were intoxicated and didn't care or mad at me or, like, it was just all related to drinking. I don't, I don't feel like I, I feel like sometimes I have a hard time believing some of the things that you've said or that you'll say, sometimes I'll be guarded about that um, as far as, like, your health. Or, you know, like when you would say, everybody drinks like this early on. Like, no, but no, this is fine. This is normal drinking. But it's always been, like, kind of related around drinking or how much you've had to drink or if you're sober to drive or, you know. Well, But other things I didn't. I didn't trust that you were going to leave, you know, leave us in a bad financial way. and I guess with the way I'm using the word trust here, I'm thinking of it as the opposite of um, having a wall between us or, or protecting yourself. And I think, so tearing down that wall that you use to protect yourself from me, that's the part of the process that's really slow. And that, I mean, full, like to me, full trust is you walk in a room, no matter what's happened, no matter what, how rough the day has been or what we've had to deal with, and you know that I'm going to be good to you and that I'm not going to say anything mean and that um, I'm going to be in a solid frame of mind, and you, you still carry around a fair bit of the defensiveness on how I'm going to react. I mean, that's fair, isn't it? Yeah, that's fair. And I'm not I'm not saying it in an accusing way or that you need to get over that. I, 
I just I'm just pointing out that I mean I talk to so many people now that are in early sobriety and I just can't emphasize enough how long this stuff takes and you can't you can't spend 25 years trying to wreck something and expect it to be fixed in a year or six months I think this kind of trust on how people react or how I think they're going to react I think that I don't know if it's something I've carried over also and been really good about keeping guard up because of growing up with an alcoholic father to a certain degree he wasn't married to my mom most of my life but he was definitely you know involved in our lives and if that has then been more amplified because of your drinking and then also I feel like it carries over to other people in my life like I don't know how they're going to react so your wall to protect yourself is it's not just to you I've realized yeah yeah that's probably true But that's one of the reasons we also talk to our kids all the time about alcohol and also with our, you know, like, like it's kind of known, like, if you have a parent who's an alcoholic that you're susceptible to marrying someone who's an alcoholic or going to become one. And so we want to make sure that our kids aren't, are understanding some of the signs and I feel like that's really important. So that that wall that you that um, protectiveness that you maintain it's totally understandable and but you're not the only one that two and a half years into our recovery has some lasting effects. You have noticed and you have said to me that a lot of times I look like I'm walking around with the weight of the world on my shoulders. And I have trouble, I have trouble just living in the moment and finding joy in things that should be joyful. I, I look like I'm always worried about something. Not always. I often look like I'm worried about something. Is that, is that, am I describing that accurately? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know in the beginning of your you know, this sobriety, like you didn't want to engage in any social affairs and we just kind of laid low and found all kinds of excuses and I'm sure it seemed like we were becoming recluse in a lot of ways because we were definitely not ones that turned down parties in the past. Um, so, and I know that, you know, you were going through a lot mentally and I kind of we expected that because we had you had been at that point already reading and doing research and understanding so we knew that these are things that needed to happen and were expected to happen and but now two and a half years later I feel like yeah I feel like you're worried about and probably rightfully slow I feel like you're worried about the world you're worried about everybody and Sometimes it just, it's really sad to look at you and not be concerned about that. Because it doesn't seem like you have any joy. And I don't know if that's all 
brain chemistry repairing needing or needed or if it's just awareness now? Well, I definitely do feel joy. That definitely took a long time to come back, but there are a lot of things that bring me joy. And the, my family, you and the kids are at the top of the list. But I do think that I, I, I let the joy be a fleeting moment and then I move back on to whatever serious thing I've been contemplating. And I need to do a better job of that. And I think part of that or most of that or all of that maybe is just the emotional immaturity that happens when you start drinking in your mid to late teens because when you when you start drinking and the drinking is what you look to to bring you joy, then your natural abilities to find joy and to stay joyful, you completely quash them because you get used to the idea that if I want to have fun, if it's the weekend and I don't have to work, or if we're going on vacation, well, you equate that with drinking. And so... Drinking becomes the pathway to joy. And when the drinking's gone, finding it and staying in that becomes really hard because when you're sober, you can always be working on something. You can always be improving something. I can always be writing something. And because there's not this impairment that keeps me from it. So just relaxing and enjoying where I am and what I'm doing is really hard for me. And... It's because I stopped <laughs> I stopped strengthening that joy muscle when when I first started drinking all those years ago. And I need to work on it. And it's important to our relationship. But I don't I don't want to end this on a downer. I mean, a lot of the topics we've discussed have been difficult and emotional. And I'm sure that this will be difficult and emotional to listen to. But things are much, much better. The recovery of my recovery from alcoholism, your recovery from my alcoholism, and the recovery of our relationship is much, 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 much better than it used to be. And I think it's important for people to hear us say that. Also, I just want to say, like, to that is... When we were talking to the kids about the alcoholism and, you know, Matt was apologizing and they were able to get off their chest what they wanted to say, I feel like that really strengthened your relationship with Nick mm-hmm. and changed that course because before Nick, our second oldest, would, you described one time when he was like six or seven, you're like, he would lay in bed with his arm ripped off until you got home. I think because there had been some sort of mistrust, distrust, uneasiness. And I feel like since then, you guys get along so well. And he trusts you. And he has so much more respect for you. And he appreciates and understands and values what you say so much more. Well, part I think part of it was that discussion for sure. But part of that is I have I've tried not to follow the pattern of just constantly teasing the boys and then treating the girl like a princess. And I've, I mean, I still tease them. I find humor in the goofy things they do and I point it out and I can't stop. But I really try hard to 
genuinely compliment the boys when they do something good and to um, even even like emotional stuff to try to recognize if they're hurting and try not to do this, ah, you're a man, be tough. And the only affection you're going to see from your father is when I'm poking fun at you. Um, I've worked really hard at that because I, I think that's another piece of American culture that is is damaging is when the boys get get teased or get get held to this this standard of toughness that the girls don't and the girls get get treated like a princess and but so yeah the relationship that I have with Nick is much better he's definitely he's opened up to me he'll talk to me about most things sometimes it's still like pulling teeth driving driving down the road just the two of us in the car how was your day fine what you do? Nothing. How was school? Fine. So sometimes it's hard to get him to talk because he's a teenager, and and I think yeah. I think that's natural. But I feel like if he did have an issue, he would probably go to you. I, I think because you opened up and you showed vulnerability vulnerability about your feelings and and being able to admit that you made a mistake, and I think you because I think our boys are fairly sensitive and they're heavy thinkers and. They do worry, and they're not quite so selfish that I think that the environment in which even when you were drinking, we raised them was that. But I feel like he says to himself, yeah, I'm not going to tell him every single thing, but he definitely, I think, I think from what like his youth pastor says, like he shares a lot more, even about himself and emotions. And I think that that helps let the boys know, especially the boys, that they need to really be open and honest about their feelings and not just hide and cover them up. I hope so. I think you're right. I think you're right. So this is the second of a three-part series of discussions about our relationship. In the first one, episode nine, we discussed the period when my alcoholism was active, when my drinking was active, and the damage that that did to our relationship. Here today, we've tried to focus on the recovery process, how hard that is for us, and the steps that we've been through, and what's worked and what hasn't. Um, the The third topic that we'll, we'll record down the road here, I know that that these two were tough enough for you, but this third one's going to be really difficult, I know, for both of us. And we're going to address the intimacy in our relationship. I wish I wish our listeners could watch you squirming right now, as I even mentioned that. But intimacy in addiction takes a huge beating. I mean, with with trust and the lack of trust... And all the bad things that happen with alcoholism, it's hard to imagine the couple finding the kind of love that's required to have a healthy, intimate relationship. And that's something that we've worked on a ton and continue to work on. And we're not there yet, but it's getting better. So, I don't know. Sherry might be comatose on volume for that discussion I shouldn't joke about drugs this is an addiction <laughs> podcast she won't be comatose but she's not going to be happy when we sit down and talk about that so 
the final word is things are getting better. We love each other. We're going to keep working, right? Yeah. I love you, Sherry. For Sherry, this is Matt Salis, The Intoxicated Podcast, and we want to thank you for listening. Please tune in again next time.